Well, this morning we are talking about God in the unexpected. That's our Advent series. And uh, I was thinking about actually uh, Adele. It's, she's an Advent character, isn't she? No, she's not. Um, I'm one of those people who, when I hear the name of a famous person, usually takes me a long time, and then finally I'll figure out, you know, what they're famous for, or who they are, what kind of what song they sang, or something like that. And Adele was one of those people for me. I heard her name a lot, and I was like, oh, I guess this Adele person is famous, so then I'm already annoyed by her, and I don't like her because she's famous, and she's probably really annoying. And... Um, I, the first time I saw or heard her was when I watched a YouTube video. And the YouTube video was of Adele going to a lookalike, an Adele lookalike contest. And so she went to her own lookalike contest. And so, um, and it's this story of like the BBC puts it on. And, and so in order to get her into the contest, they gave her a fake chin because she says, oh, I've, I've got a bum chin. And so they give her a fake chin, and they give her a fake nose, and then she makes fun of her accent and says, it's very harsh, it's very harsh. So then she softened her accent, and she became this other person. She called herself Jenny. She took on a different name, Jenny, and she was a nanny. And she went and got in line with all these other contestants for this lookalike contest. And so she's there and all these wonderful, all these different people, and they're talking about all these Adele mannerisms. She uses her hands, and the one's like, oh, I'm going to take off my shoes like Adele does. You know, and in that one concert, she took off her shoes, so I might do that. And then, so they're, they're all excited, and so they go one at a time, and they do, they sing and perform, and then they go and sit down in the front row, and they're watching. And so um, Jenny is in the line and she starts acting really nervous. So all the ladies are, you know, they're all worried about her. And then, so they, they're all sitting down and finally it's Jenny's turn and she comes out and then she misses her cue on the first song. And so they're all like, oh no, oh no. And then, and, and so they're nervous and then Jenny starts singing. And suddenly they realize the one grabs the others. She's like, and the other girl's like, no, no. No, she's like, yes, yes. And they're like, no, no, it can't be, it can't be. Some of them don't believe it right away. And they're looking at it and they're like, that's not Adele. But the voice, the voice begins to win them over. And they hear this song. And then they begin to weep. And then they begin to laugh. And then finally, as they all come to terms that this is really Adele, they begin to sing along in the song she's singing. And they're all singing with Adele on right there. Amazing. You know, this is also the story of God. The, the God whom we adored from afar, separated from him by his holiness and justice and by our sin and shame. And then he came. He came and he to put on some skin, took a different nose, new chin, took on a, a Jewish accent, And he took the name Jesus, and then unexpectedly he came and he stood in line with us. And then we didn't know him until he began to sing a song about our hearts and about eternity. And as he did, we started to recognize him. Something in our hearts recognized, and we began to respond. It was the voice that won us over, the voice we recognized of the one whom we'd loved for so long. And when we believe, we begin to weep and laugh 
and sing along. Jesus who shows up in unexpected places. Unexpected places. Let's read Luke chapter 2. We're going to spring from there. Uh, The Christmas story um, takes place. We hear about it in Matthew and also in Luke. And so we're going to read a little bit of, yes, Luke today. This is what it says in Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger, because there was no room for them in the inn." And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, And lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus brings peace to unexpected places. Jesus brings peace in unexpected places. Towns like Bethlehem, towns like Bethlehem. You know, when the royal family comes to visit Canada, they visit major cities. Usually they're making a tour, and so they try to get the most people possible. You know, they don't go to Fernie. Thank you for laughing. Some of you are like, Fernie? What's Fernie? Fernie's a, a town in British Columbia, if you didn't know that. It's a little town. I don't think the royal family's been there. And when the kings come the Magi come from the east. They're not making a beeline for Bethlehem. They're going to where is the, the most logical, sensible place to go, which is Jerusalem, to the palace. That's where they go. They saw the star that pointed to the birth of the king of the Jews. And so they're coming to the palace, to Jerusalem, to find out where's this king and to worship him. Why is Jesus born in Bethlehem? Six miles away from Jerusalem. Why is this the case? This small little town of Bethlehem. Why here? Well, Jesus' birth and his life and in his death, there he fulfilled over 300 prophecies that were made about the Messiah, about his life. Now, some of those things, people could say, well, okay, well, you know, if you knew the prophecy was like blow the Messiah is going to blow out that candle, so we just blow out the candle, and oh, there, and he fulfills the prophecy. Great. Okay, well, that's easy enough. Well, some of the prophecies are about how he died, so that's pretty hard to control how you die and what happens around your death. One of the prophecies was where you would be born. How do you control where you're born? This is what happens when the Magi get there. 
Herod, when he hears about this, he was troubled. It says in Matthew chapter 2, and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this is, there's a, the, the passages in Micah chapter 5. And the Messiah watchers, they knew this. They knew the prophecies. They're watching for these things. When's the Messiah coming? Who's the Messiah? He's got to fulfill these prophecies. And that's how we're going to know who it is. So Bethlehem is the town. That's what they're watching for and waiting for. The Savior would be born in Bethlehem. Now, do you know anyone else important who was born in Bethlehem? Do you know Ruth? Do you know the story of Ruth? Many of you might have heard that story before. In the Old Testament, there's a whole book called Ruth. And Ruth was actually not Jewish. She was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. And a guy named Elimelech, I want to make sure I say his name right, Elimelech, He's not, we don't talk about him much in the story, but Naomi was his wife and they went, because there was a famine, they went to Moab. And his sons end up meeting girls there and they got married. And then the sons die, the husband dies, the sons die. So it's just Naomi and her daughters-in-law. And one of them goes back and she's going to go back to Israel because they heard there's, there's bread again. There's the, the famine is over. And so she goes back and a person, the, the other daughter-in-law named Ruth, says, I want to go with you. Your God will be my God. I want to I follow this God. I want to be part of this life. And I will go with you, even though I don't have any, there's no husband. And so she says, okay. And they go back. And where's the, what town do they go back to? Yeah, this is like not a trick question. I've already kind of told you the answer. It's up on the screen. Okay, Bethlehem. They go back to Bethlehem because Elimelech is from Bethlehem. Naomi is from Bethlehem. This is their town. And do you know what? When they go back to this town, do you know what the, town, you know what the word Bethlehem means? Town, it means house of bread. House of bread. So when they go back, and what's Ruth's job that she takes on? She's, she goes after the harvesters and she collects the wheat in the fields of Bethlehem. This is where they are. And the, the harvest is in, and there's, there's food again in Bethlehem. This is Ruth. Now, Ruth is part of an important story because Ruth has a son, and his son has a son, and I think that's, and then that son is Jesse. And Jesse, who is also from Bethlehem because the whole family's from Bethlehem, Jesse has some sons too. Do you know who the youngest son of Jesse is? His name is David. Everyone's like, Rah. someone's like, Rah. David, just say it along with everyone. David, David is from Bethlehem. And David was a shepherd in the fields of Bethlehem. Isn't that cool? He was out with the sheep. He's out, out on the hillside as a shepherd with sheep outside Bethlehem. Isn't that cool? The lion he killed to protect his sheep is the lion outside Bethlehem. And one of the bears he killed, the bear outside Bethlehem, outside on those hills. And when he was writing his first songs outside with the harp while he watched the sheep in the night sky, it was the night sky outside Bethlehem. Wow. And David, who'd become the king and sit on a throne 
that is prophesied that his throne, his lineage would never end. This was a throne that would be established. So it was important that there's a connection to David and to Bethlehem. God had an eternal plan. He was on course. The bread of life was one of the names for Jesus. The bread of life would be born in the house of bread. The city that now would be providing the bread of life as Jesus is born there. Now, I love to say that peace comes for Bethlehem with the birth of Jesus. And actually, my first version of my sermon didn't really reference this part until actually early this morning. As I was going through it, I felt like, you know what? We can't just say, great, Bethlehem got Jesus and everything went well for Bethlehem. Do you know it didn't? There's a part of the Christmas story we don't like to talk about. It's not in the Christmas pageant as we saw last night. (laughs) That's what the Herdmans fight over. A guy named Herod. And if you know the nativity story, you know we don't. We don't like to include this part when we talk about it. But the truth is that the Magi who go to Bethlehem and find Jesus and worship him don't go back to Herod because they get warned in a dream and they go back a different way. And Herod gets enraged, incensed. And he orders that all the baby boys in Bethlehem under two be murdered. And it says that a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Referencing this scripture. There was weeping in Bethlehem. So how is there peace for Bethlehem? My answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I do know that I always thought as a kid I could do a little better than God on this one. I was like, you know, it, I don't know, God. I, like, if I were God, I'd like deal with the whole Herod thing. Boink! A lot sooner. How can anyone have peace when there's evil like this in the world? Maybe you've struggled with this pain. Maybe you've loved ones who suffered. Or you've experienced disease. Or abuse. Or famine. Or conflict. Or violence. Or rage. Or lies. Or manipulation. Or deceit. Or murder. Or adultery. And the list goes on. I don't know how there's peace for Jerusalem, but this, I do know that there was a guy named Pharaoh who killed a bunch of babies in Egypt, Hebrew babies, when another deliverer was going to be born. And I know that that happens. I know that there's a devil whose job description is to steal and kill and destroy, and that there's a battle going on as the kingdom of heaven comes here. There's a battle. And I also know that this baby that was born in Bethlehem, his job was to establish a kingdom of peace. He was the prince of peace. And so I'll follow him. Even though I don't have all the answers, I don't have the answers for Bethlehem as they struggled through their loss. But there is peace for them in the coming of Jesus. Now God's picks are not more comfortable for me. And this I also know that as I picture Mary getting the nursery ready, she's, you know, decorating as I have a wife who's decorated nurseries a few times, five times, 
that there's, especially with the first baby, though, there's some special things and there's like a lot of nesting that happens around birth and there's resting that happens around birth. So, so suddenly when the news would come about this census or registration or whatever we want to call it, where there's travel now that has to happen in the third trimester of Mary's birth, like if she were going on an airplane, they wouldn't let her on the plane. She'd go down there and they'd be like, oh, sorry, whoa, you're really pregnant. Well, how far along are you? Oh, you're in your third trimester. No way, you can't go on the plane. We're not going to take you. You're too close. That's the, that's the deal. Um, Dave and Lindsay, our, our head custodian Dave, his wife is overdue right now. I saw, we saw him, was he here? Oh, Friday. Yes, that's right. He was here Friday. They hadn't had their baby yet. And he's like, oh yeah, no, it's, we're overdue. It's time, you know. And I remember like when you're overdue, there's the things you do to try. And sometimes before you're overdue, you you want that baby to come. There's some things you can do. You go for a long walk, right? So you know all the things, right? You go for a long walk or you clean the house or there's some different things you're trying to do to get this baby to come. And I know with Gabriel, we were building the kitchen, renovating the kitchen. So we were trying not to have Gabriel come. And his due date was like, the, house, the kitchen was not ready. And so it was like, Gabe, don't come yet. Don't sit still, Lauren. Don't do anything. You know, don't go for a long walk. Don't clean anything. Just sit there. Just don't, don't get Gabe to come if that's your part of this. I don't know how it works totally. And I think there's Mary and she's got, is Bethlehem a good choice for Mary and Joseph? Like who planned this? this is, is Bethlehem a good choice for her? How does this work? Certainly not. God's choice of Bethlehem is not better for Mary. They are going to have to travel. Bethlehem isn't their town. Nazareth is their town. They're going to have no room when they get there. When they arrive in God's chosen place, there will be no room for them. So wrap your head around this. If God in the flesh in utero, was forced to make a several-day journey and arrive with no proper lodging, what exactly is your claim to comfort? What's your claim to it? It's my right. If Jesus, when he came, had to go through that, and that was God's plan. Secondly, Unexpected places, fields, and mangers. People are funny. I had, I've had people recently um, come, and they, it's like they want to give you unexpected news or bad news, or like they want to shock you a bit. And so I've heard this thing of like, your nativity is wrong. Maybe you've heard this. Your nativity is wrong. And it's annoying because I like my nativity. It's neat. We have a great nativity set. We've got the little glass characters, and they're really beautiful. And I know that the real story isn't this beautiful, and there's, you know, it's dirtier and messier and all those things. And, uh, you know, that Jesus is more Middle Eastern than my glass figurine. And uh, the Magi, you know, they might not be there at that thing when the baby's born. Okay, okay. And then I have these people saying there might not be a stable. I'm like, what? Like, I want one of the unexpected places to be the stable. That's what I want because it's lowly, it's unexpected, it's humble. And then I read through the story again and I look at it and this is what it says. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
So the Bible doesn't say the word stable. And this is why it's in contention with some people. The, the only thing it says is that there's no place for them in the inn. There's no actual room. Now, for us, the word inn conjures up this picture of like a motel with a restaurant, usually. That's what we picture. That's what I picture. Like a, an inn, you know, like a traveler's inn, right? Some kind of motel with a restaurant. And the kind of story in my mind from I don't know what, but is this capricious innkeeper who comes to marry this young pregnant girl and says, sorry, there's no room. And she turns away and they start walking and then he goes, closes his door. And then his wife comes because every man needs a good wife to do this, correct you in this way. And she says, what are you doing? You can't turn away a pregnant one. And he's oh, well, we need to. Like, we got no room. There's no room. And she goes, please, no, we have to. And he says, okay, well, there's the barn. There's the barn. Okay, we'll send them into the barn's warm. And they take them to the barn. And this is the story, except for like that part of the story is not in the Bible either. We just kind of have that in our heads. The, the th- interesting thing is this word in translates also as the word guest room, which is where people get this thing from. So it could have been that it was a relative's house and their guest rooms were full, in which case they would be in the lower courtyard or outer courtyard or whatever with the, where the animals were, where it would be dry. And at worst, they would be in, the, in a stable, which would be like a dry cave. And that was kind of, that's the earliest thing when you look at kind of the different commentators, they'll say the earliest reference that keeps coming back over and over is that the early disciples and believers talked about this like it was a cave, like a dry cave as a stable cave. So, in the end, does this change the story? If it's a cave, or it's a lower courtyard, or whatever. The point is, there's no room. They're not in a room. And there's another word that comes up over and over, and that's the word manger. Thankfully. So these sticklers that need historically accurate displays can have a manger still in there, and change whatever else they need to change. But what kind of place would you lay the Savior of the world? What kind of place, what kind of bed would be nice enough for the creator of the universe, made flesh, to be laid in? A manger? A feeding trough. Whether it's stone or wood, it really doesn't matter. It's a feeding trough. And the angels say, this is where you'll find him. In this very unexpected place to find the savior of the world. One Bible commentator writes, (laughs) still makes me laugh, though simple, this was not insulting. Just, Just let that wash over you. Though simple, this was not insulting that he would be in the manger. And I think, okay, okay. Sure, if you're like a poor carpenter, this would be simple and not insulting. Okay, maybe. Or like a middle-class carpenter. Okay, fine. Or like maybe a first-time mom who doesn't know any better. She's just like, oh, we need to put the baby somewhere. Okay, yeah, this manger's great. Okay, maybe that's simple, not insulting. But what about for royalty? What about if this was Julius Caesar's son? Would this be simple but not insulting? I don't think so they would clear the inn. They would clear the place and give this baby whatever room it wanted, whatever place they wanted. That's how it would work. But not for Jesus. He's outside. He's outside a room. He's too late 
too unimportant to move people around to give him space. So sure, we could cut the cattle lowing or whatever and ditch the hay-filled barn, but the point is that Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, who was with God, who was God, is lying helpless in a feeding trough. There's no good way to spin that. Do you ever feel insulted by God's choices? Do you ever feel insulted? Like other people might find these circumstances simple but not insulting, but like you and me, we're entitled to better, aren't we? Aren't we? we? Haven't we been good at keeping the rules? And haven't we gone to church a lot? Or like sometimes? Haven't we read our Bibles a pretty good amount? Haven't we not stolen overtly? Haven't we been, we haven't been angry in public? (laughs) (laughs) Haven't we stooped so low to help those poor and needy people who needed things? Those people who need things? Simple or insulting? How do we feel? At least there's angel announcements in this story. Finally, there's something that's right. The angels come, and you know, finally they're in a place we expect an angel to be. Gabriel appears, and Gabriel says he is an angel who stands in the presence of God Almighty. Yes, finally, somewhere where an angel should be, in the temple, behind the curtains, hidden from view in the holy places, Places where if you're not purified, if you're not ready, and the presence of God shows up, they drag you out by your leg because you're dead. This is a holy place. Finally, this is where we expect angels to be, isn't it? That's why Zechariah responds so well to the angel who appears and tells him he's going to have John the Baptist. No. No, that's not what happens. He's so Doubtful that in the end, Gabriel has to strike him mute. He needs another sign. Give me another sign. Give me another sign. And he becomes mute. That's the story. And angels appear in dreams. And that sounds pretty safe. I mean, Joseph gets a couple of those. The Magi get one of those, you know, the, the warning in the dreams. But, but fields to shepherds, again, unexpected. I just picture the, you know, the angel choir, this multitude drops down on the field and someone's like, stop, stop, wait, check the transponder. Do we end up in the right spot? Who's on the, the transporter up there? Like, this can't be right here. We're in a field with a bunch of shepherds. Is this really where we're announcing this to these guys? This is the glorious announcement. God is not just in the holy places. He appears in tents and in wine presses and in rivers and in exile and in Babylonian pagan fiery furnaces. He shows up and mangers. Everyday places to everyday people. Places like our places and people like, like us. Angels announce good news for all people unto you, a child, a savior is born. 
And the last unexpected place would be hearts like ours. Hearts like ours. Hearts like mine. I watched a movie recently. It's um, called The Circle, and it's about, it has Tom Hanks in it. It's about this internet company. It's kind of like a little bit of a thriller. And it, this internet company is like trying to get everyone on their their program because they want to know everything. And so they figure if everyone's on their program, they can spy on everyone. And it's kind of a weird movie. And um, they're, they're, this company's motto is secrets are lies. And so they say, the more we know, the better. There should be no secrets. No one should have any secrets. It's, everything should be transparent. And so the main character of the movie goes fully transparent by putting a camera on her shirt, on her jacket, and she wears this camera all the time. So everything she says and does is documented, barring a few, you know, places or whatever. But like, all her conversations are recorded and documented, and they're, they're uh, streamed to the world live. So there's no editing. And so as she walks around, you see on the screen all these people commenting on her life. Everything she says and does, they're from all around the world, all these people. And some of it's like, you know, encouraging, like, oh, we love you. Oh, great job. Oh, I like how you said that. And some of it's um, critical and judgmental, like, oh, that was horrible. Oh, I hate that. Oh, da, da, da. And all these things are being said about this girl's life. And I realized that at this point in the movie that it lost me because I felt like no one would do this in real life. I don't think you could find a person who would do this. Who would let everyone see everything about you or let someone see everything about you? Frederick Buckner says, what we hunger for perhaps more than anything else is to be known in our full humanness. And yet, that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. And the truth is that I have a black heart. When it really comes down to it, I'm not good. I don't want to be good. I'm not righteous, and I don't want to be righteous in the moments where it counts. If we're sheep... I'm not the good sheep. I'm not the compliant sheep who stays in the pasture and does the right thing. I'm the, one, I, I'm the sheep that's wandering off. I'll go as far as I can get till I get caught in the bramble and the thorns. Or I'll just wander right into the lion's den because that's what kind of sheep I am. I'm an idiot sheep, frankly. So the last place I expect... God of the universe, creator of the galaxies, eternal and glorious, radiant and holy, beautiful and infinite, to want to be is my heart. That's the last place I expect he'd want to be. This is what Ephesians chapter 2, 13 to 22 says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is what's so incredible. Jesus came to those who are far away and those who are near. He, you know, to the Magi and to the local shepherds. All different people heard he was here coming. And he brought peace. It says he killed the hostility. He broke the, the dividing wall. So we're no longer strangers, but we are a place. We're a place for God. John fourteen seventeen says, you know him. And he dwells, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's crazy. That is a crazy picture. And you know it's crazy when you go try to tell that to someone who's not a Christian. So, and you, you'll go say, yeah, you know, Jesus wants to be in your heart. And they'll be like, what? Yeah, God's going to come and live inside of you. What? It's a crazy picture. It's It's hard to believe that the temple, the holiest place where his presence resides, this place is you and me. This place he wants to dwell. See, they expected a savior to come and to make peace between the Romans and the Jews. And they were picturing destroying the Romans. That's how the peace would come. Someone's got to beat them and then there'll be peace. But Jesus was coming to do a much larger thing. He was coming to bring peace between man and God. We say, well, then I want some of that peace. Where's the peace? Shouldn't I be experiencing that peace? Peace in my struggle? Peace in my conflict? Peace in my finances? Peace in my home? Peace in my marriage? Peace in my fear? Peace in my planning? Peace in my heart? That's what I want. Paul says, for he himself is our peace. Just, just give it to me and I'll be good. I'll be on my way. Just give me some, I'll make it last. He himself is our peace. You want peace? Then you need to welcome Jesus. He himself is our peace. The unexpected, the unexpected place Jesus comes by his spirit is into our hearts. And the unexpected thing Jesus does is he makes that into a place where he can dwell. That's what's so amazing. So my black heart becomes a dwelling place for God, a black heart no longer. Radiant and transformed and renewed and free. I am a saint, a fellow citizen, a holy temple. This is good news. This is good news. Again, Frederick Buckner says, turn around and believe that the good news that we are loved is better than we ever dared hope. And that to believe in that good news, to live out of it and toward it is to be in love with that good news is that, or to be in love with that good news is of all glad things in this world, the gladdest thing of all. Amen and come Lord Jesus. This is an amazing thing 
that God says, I want to live in you and I want to make you a place where I can dwell. Jesus brings peace in unexpected places. The good news that we're loved is better than we dared hope. This is the story of God, that he, we, he was the one we adored from afar. He was separated from us by our sin and shame, by the things we have done, and because he's holy and just. And then he came. He put on skin. He took on the new chin and the different nose and the Jewish accent. And he took on the name Jesus, and he unexpectedly stood in line with us, born in little podunk Bethlehem, not in a room, but in a manger. And we didn't know him until he began to sing that song over us, this song that our hearts long to hear, and it's his voice that we recognize, that we respond to as he calls to us. And when we believe, we weep, and laugh and sing along. And Jesus does the most unexpected thing of all. He builds our hearts into a place for his peace, for his very presence to reside. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that, um, I thank you that you do these unexpected things and you come to these unexpected places because um, when we're honest, the the most shocking place of all is our own lives, that you would come and you would send your spirit to live in us and to transform us. And you said that while we were your enemies, you died for us. And all of this is hard to grasp. It's hard to, to fully understand. And so much of the time we, we walk around in our shame that we're, we're just not good enough or we just, we just shouldn't have you. And then other times where we feel entitled to more things. We go back and forth. Jesus, would you come and would you live in us and transform us? Would you bring your peace in our lives? Not because you're dropping it off like it's a gift that you're delivering, but because you bring it with who you are. You yourself are our peace. So would you come and would you live in us and change us to be more like you? Thank you that as you do that, we begin to sing this song over others. And they hear this good news. Lord, we pray that others would respond, would invite you in and experience your peace. This season and in the seasons to come. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.